Well, if you have a Bible, a Bible with you or your app, if you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to spend a little time in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, you might have noticed on the handout that I came up with a title, Wanted Grown-Ups. And uh, really and truly, that could be a sign at all the Little League baseball fields as people entered the stands, wanted grown-ups. Um, but this is a, in a spiritual context, and, and I really have to, I'm careful when I read something, I get something from someone that I want to give them credit. Gordon Fee is probably the foremost uh, Pentecostal scholar uh, in Bible and in research, and so I really got that idea from him a rendering on 1 Corinthians 2, 6 that we'll read in just a moment. Um, this letter, what we're going to go through is uh, part of chapter 2 and over into the first couple verses of chapter 3. It's kind of hard when we've had a Bible so long that we just turn by chapters and we almost think that 1 Corinthians had these 16 chapters or so in here, and that's the way he wrote it. There was none of these divisions. It was a continuous letter. The other day, I, um, I'm privileged to have a lot of correspondence between my mom and my dad. Uh, it ended up in my possession, I guess, uh, during the war when he was in Guam and different places. But I found a letter the other day that was really interesting. I'd never seen it before in all of my collection. And it was dated June of 1941. And while the reason why that uh, sparked my interest is that they didn't get married until October of 1941. So she had two really beautiful replicas of lipstick at the end of that letter. And I thought for a moment, well, am I violating something here? Uh, reading the letter she was writing, it was Jefferson, Missouri. He was stationed uh, out there as a... Air, Army Air Corps tech, and he was a private, private Winford B. Lynn, and, and uh, it wasn't an esteemy letter. I, I felt okay about reading it. But she did something that's kind of interesting, and it was like part of their culture. Now, now, some of you need to probably know that at one point in life, people actually wrote letters and put them in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and mailed it to somebody. That They used to really do that. And uh, she would number the pages in Roman numeral. Up at the top of the second page, of course, she wrote on front and back. And one of her big, one of her big questions to my dad is, um, would you like to get a letter every day or every other day? Uh, well, if you're, if you're getting too many letters, let me know. You know, they were not married. They were just courting. So she was... All through that, it's like, if I'm, am I writing too much or you want me to write less, let me know, and all of this. She says, but you can write me every day if you want to. But she numbered those pages. And when we look at what we're reading here, none of this was divided up into verses and chapters. It was one continuous letter, and the translators put it this way so we could find somewhere collectively when we go there. So when you look at... 1 Corinthians 2.6, uh, you'll read this, and I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 2.6 and um, chapter 3, verse 1, because both of those 
are connected in a way. So if you have chapter six, look at verse or chapter two, verse six, and look at chapter three, verse one. I'll read uh, two six first. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. And jump down to the very first verse in chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. So those two terms are offsetting each other. Let me take you to how Gordon Fee rendered verse 6. We do, however, speak wisdom among grown-ups, people that should be grown-ups, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are being brought to nothing. And he says in verse 1, And I, brothers and sisters, are not, was not able to speak to you as to spirit people, but as to those still in the flesh, as to mere infants in Christ. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1, it's kind of comforting that Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters, even though they're acting like crybabies and whiny babies, mere infants. That's, that's really what he's saying. You're, you're acting as though spiritually you're in that state of development instead of what you should be as grown-ups. He said, there's a disconnect here from what you need to be and should be. But mind you, he says, mere infants in Christ. He, was, he wasn't saying that they weren't believers. I think sometimes we come to conclusions that people don't reach a certain expectation level. We start wondering if they're, I don't know if you do this. I do this. I'm prone to do this. Like, well, I wonder if they're really born again. You ever thought that? Just maybe because the actions, behavior, decisions, like, and you're trying to, especially somebody you're trying to work with and it doesn't seem like it's working and you get a little frustrated. Do you think it was possible for Paul to be a little bit frustrated with these people? I think when he even resorts to a little bit of sarcasm at one point with them. But I want you to go back to the opening words of chapter 2. I, I didn't read the first part of chapter 2, but I don't want to take you back to that. And so it was, this is verse 1, follow this with me if you will. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling, which is kind of an unusual statement for Paul to make, is I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. They were affected by their culture, and they started out in responding to the gospel and being saved, but now Paul is saying, with correction, you're not where you need to be. You're, you're still like mere infants in Christ. The influence of their Greek culture was just caving in on them. And this is what brings us to that first point. 
I titled it the know-it-all problem. The believers in Corinth were saved through the simple preaching. Paul said, I only wanted to tell you about Jesus Christ and him crucified and telling them that they were prompted by the Holy Spirit and they got saved. They genuinely got saved. That's the miracle of redemption. In a culture of elitism, of wisdom, of philosophy, it's kind of like the other Wednesday night, I talked about the 50th anniversary of us landing on the moon. And I'm reading a book, American Moonshot, by Douglas Brinkley because he wrote it just for this 50th anniversary. And so intriguing. And out of nowhere, I'm sharing a little bit that I shared that Wednesday night. I came across, and I was sitting there reading, and I said something to Brent. It was late at night. It was about the last thing I was going to do is read a little bit in that book. And I said, it said that Warner Von Braun had a born-again experience. I never heard that. So I closed the book. I Googled Warner Von Braun born-again experience, and up pops this article that C.M. Ward, Revival Time preacher, interviews Warner Von Braun about his testimony in May of 1966. Three years before we landed on the moon. And here's this genius, this man who is really considered the principal person that developed rockets powerful enough. The Saturn rockets was his creation. You know, there's a lot of history there I'm not going to go into, but if you are familiar with World War II, you know that he came from Germany. But he's a genius, and here he he is, one of the most brilliant scientific minds, and he walks in because a neighbor invites him when he's at Fort Bliss, Texas, developing rockets for the United States Army and Air Force, and he is invited by a neighbor to attend church. And all he ever knew was dead Lutheranism. And he thought the American version of the church would be like a country club meeting. And he walked in and saw all these people worshiping like you worship on a Sunday morning. He looked around and he saw authentic faith. And this is what he said. I realized I was morally adrift and I needed to surrender my life to the Lord. He would have fit in to the Greek culture of wisdom. He would have been celebrated in the Greek culture. But here's the miracle of the gospel just a simple white frame building in Fort Bliss, Texas. The man comes to faith, one of the most brilliant scientific minds. And it shows you the miracle of these Corinthians getting saved because they were steeped in Greek culture. They debated philosophy. It was all about learning and and university training and the deeper things of life. And they just would spend time upon time about all of these discussions about philosophy. It's kind of like up in Athens that Paul went up to Athens. He went to Athens before he went to Corinth, and it didn't go so well in Athens. And and all these people were kind of like, they thought he was crazy. They thought, well, we'll listen to him. And then when he gets to Jesus, died and rose again, they laughed him off as though that was nothing but foolishness. And this is why he says later that the preaching of the gospel is to the Jews a stumbling block, But to the Greeks, it's foolishness. They look at that story through the prism of their intelligence, and they say, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit within our... And what happened was that culture that these people got saved out of had started coming back into their thinking, and they were missing out on where they should be going. 
It wasn't that they weren't Christians. They were just not guided. They, were, they had came to this know-it-all. They actually thought Paul really wasn't all that impressive. They did. They, they started choosing other teachers. Like, well, we like, kind of like Apollos. We kind of like Peter. And, you know, and we, didn't, we don't kind of like any of them. We just like Christ. We don't. They were really choosing who they was going to listen to based on whether it appealed to their elitism. And they just brushed Paul off. And a lot of this is him reacting and responding. They leaned back into the view of life before they got saved, this idea of being spiritually elite. I'm going to tell you something. Spiritual elitism is a dangerous malignancy, whether it shows up in the first century church in Corinth or the 21st century church in America. And we have spiritual elitism you can kind of recognize it. It's this idea, the deeper things of the spiritual life, God has showed me the secrets to it. And if you send in a donation to our ministry, we will send you this book on the seven secrets and the mystery of the deeper things. There's people who do such commercials. They won't tell you on television the secrets. You have to send a donation to get the secrets. I want to tell you, you are, oh, the red flag should just, the red light, something should go off when you hear someone talk about, I've discovered things that nobody else has discovered. I've discovered the secrets of the deeper life. That would appeal to these people. And Paul says, I'm not coming to you with that kind of stuff. I'm coming to you with the simplicity of the gospel. I still don't want you to know anything more than the, the theme of Jesus dying and ro- rising from the dead. Him crucified. You know what I see in Paul? Paul's not spiritually elite. He had credentials, right? Paul had the degrees. He, he had the training. He could, he could look back and say, you know what? I was kind of like the A student. I was the honor student. There was hardly anybody that was ahead of me in class. But he said, all that stuff I count but dumb that I might attain Christ. And even he goes on and says, I have to crucify myself daily. He never promoted himself. He could could engage the authority that the Lord put on him as an apostle, but he never put himself out there in such a way as says, I know things that you people don't know, and if you're patient, I'll I'll help you learn those things. He's not doing any of that in in 1 Corinthians because he's having to do correction. They're They're all wondering. And that brings me to the second point. The key to everything. How many would like to know the key to everything? I sound like one of those guys peddling the book of secrets, right? Who wants to know the key to everything? Well, let me rephrase the question. Who is the key to everything? It's a big difference between what is the key. Because there is not a what, but there is a who. Who is the key? I want to take you to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2. Here's the key to everything. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, 
but in words taught by the Spirit, enabling or explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The Spirit is the key to everything. The Holy Spirit is the key to everything. Follow, follow Paul's teaching. This is the first place that the, key, the Spirit is the key to Paul's preaching. It's not, Paul is not thinking about his oratorical skills. He says, the key to my preaching is the Holy Spirit takes the message and pierces the hearts of someone, and they get saved not because of my preaching. They get saved because the Spirit is in the Word. The Spirit of God, the life of God is in the gospel. You do not have to be trained in the finer details of evangelism to share the gospel. The story of Christ dying and being raised from the dead, that has in it the life, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a key. Paul said, the key to my preaching is that I did not come with you with my intelligence. I didn't come with you with a wonderful worded message. I came to you in the simplicity of the gospel. The Spirit in that gospel was the key to everything. My message, this is verse 4 in chapter 2. I'm, I've read it before. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And he's not talking about necessarily signs and wonders here. He's talking about the Spirit's power in the message, in the gospel. And this is the second thing. The Holy Spirit is the key to their conversion. They didn't get converted because Paul preached to them. They got converted because the Holy Spirit moved through what Paul preached, and they were converted. Their conversion. He says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom. The, the very thing that I, I'm re, kind of repeating myself, but this is the very thing that Paul is saying. So that your faith would not rest on a Paul preached a great message and I became a Christian because Paul preached a great message. He said, that's not what it's based on. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the contrast. What Paul is saying is about his own ministry is placed in antithesis to human wisdom. It's, it's, upper, it's the other side of it, completely opposite. People may think that Pentecostals stress the Holy Spirit way too much. I've heard that claim. You, know, you, you people just talk on and on about the Holy Spirit. Well, looks like Paul talked a lot about it. You read chapter 2 and he's like, what, is he obsessed with the Holy Spirit? He's telling them that the Holy Spirit present today took the place of Jesus to communicate Jesus to the hearts of people. And the Holy Spirit is the key to our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God in our world today. And he's really, I, th I think what they were in danger of, they had resorted back to having these deep discussions and the deeper things of the Spirit, and they were going in the wrong direction. They were not discovering that it's the Holy Spirit. It's not their understanding. It's not their wisdom. It's the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is key to everything. And the third thing the Holy Spirit is key to is that they should understand that Paul's message, the content of his message was the real wisdom of God. The true wisdom of God. There, there's these two wisdoms that's put 
opposing to each other. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has terminology and words, but those words communicate the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit is key to everything. He's the key to preaching, to believing, to understanding, to going forward, to growing, to be empowered. And this is my final point this morning, is this phrase, yes, you can. <laughs> Paul points out, these are, he says, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know. We just kind of look at things through our eyes, don't we? We look at a congregation like we're here in this room and there's churches all over this town that have people sitting in seats and this is what we do on Sunday mornings and they didn't have anything like that. They were meeting in people's homes. Now, some of you would be all right if we said, hey, we're coming to your house after church. But some of you says, no, you're not. <laughs> Sorry, maybe next week, but not today. Not coming to our house. You know, we're kind of like, we, we've kind of divided this community up. We're okay getting together on Sunday morning, but mm, I don't know about that. My home is my cave. I, it's my getaway. I'm, I'm not really wanting to entertain anybody in my home. But this is the way they survived. This is the way they live in the first century. There was no buildings built. It was two or three hundred years after the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost that they started building buildings. It wasn't a great cathedral. It was just anything that they could fit some people in. Because everybody was against them. They weren't allowed to build any buildings until Constantine became the emperor. And then he kind of institutionalized Christianity, which was one of the worst things he could have done. But I'm just saying, they survived in homes. They, they would meet in homes and probably at some point they'd have a public place where they all got together and they would worship the Lord and they would have these wonderful times of fellowship. This is how they survived. So here Paul is talking to people. These are his friends. These are people that are Kind of like his spiritual babies. They came to know Jesus through him, and he feels responsible for them and, and discipling them. And he's really, he's, he's not telling them they're not born again. He's just saying, hey, you're way off track on some things. And this is what he was telling them. Stop some of the things you're doing. Has nothing to do with your conversion. Has nothing to do with who you are in Jesus. And you don't have to read very far in the first letter of Corinthians to know that they were really doing some things that, like, what? They were doing what? And he called them out on He says, you got to stop that. you got to put the brakes on that. you got to deal with that person. you got to take that person out of your fellowship until he gets sorted out. You cannot give the sense that that's okay with you when that's not okay with God. Didn't he, did he not say that? He brought correction because he knew that they were, they were going in the wrong way. They, they were allowing to embrace things that used to, be, used to be part of their lives, still part of the Corinthian culture, the Greek culture, the, the, the pretty much anything goes. And he says, you can't live that way. You are not of this world. You're not of the spirit of this world. You are the spirit of God, and you have to start acting like grown-ups, acting like you know better. And he was telling them, you can do this. Let me take you back to chapter 2. I don't think I've read these verses. I'm going to read verse 6. 
Listen to this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, among those who are grown up, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He said, if they really knew the truth, they would have never endorsed the execution of Jesus. And Paul is writing them and says, you need to stop doing some of the things you're doing because you're not of this world. You're of the world of God's power and grace. So stop acting like you're otherwise. Now, you've probably never seen Christians act otherwise. We do not have a spirit of this world, but we have the spirit of God, which has no rival in power and influence. It really amazes me when we can excuse our misbehavior. And we can dismiss it and dismiss behavior patterns just because we say, well, that's just the way I am. That's me. I got a short fuse. People I know not to set me off. Don't be like that. Stop it. Stop saying that. Because it's not true. We are born again of the power of God. And everything that God wants for us, we can experience it. We can turn the corner on these things. Sometimes it's the celebration of the, of the flesh. It's kind of like, I gave them a piece of my mind. Hallelujah. I let that waitress have it. You did? What a good witness. Those who fail to realize that they have a different spirit in the core of their being will continue to act out the flesh when they don't have to. It isn't, am, am I missing something here? I think he's really calling them to, to stop doing some of the things they're doing. And he expects them to because he says, you, you're not of this world. Why are you acting like you're of this world? We, we've come to a place almost like a, a Corinthian mindset, like a rationale to, that we fit in, we fit in into circumstances and we probably get involved in conversations that we have no there's no good reason for us to be involved in some conversations there's no good reason why our eyes should see certain things on the internet or on television there's no good reason why we engage in discussion about things that are outside of the boundaries of what God's will is this whole thing about abortion and, and the Alabama, you know, man, we, we getting a stew beat out of us nationally because of the abortion bill. And, you know, in the midst of that, and I see a lot of back and forth, but I thought, what does God think about abortion? Pump the brakes a little bit and say, what does God think about that? I think that believers, who are believers? See, my dad told me one time, when Bill Clinton was elected president, he says, 
I said, well, there's a lot of Christians voted for me. He said, well, they're not Christians. I said, well, they, they can vote for anybody they want to. Well, they're not Christians. I said, and knowing my dad is a military guy, I just shut up. <laughs> but I thought, well, Christians, like Judson and Cornwall, can do whatever they want to do. Right? Can any of you in this room can do anything you want to do? Now, you might not, but can you do anything you want to do? Yes, you can. You can get mad. You can lose your temper. You can say words you shouldn't say. You can do all kinds of stuff, but you shouldn't. And then we come to these sensitive issues, and we're almost like the Athenian mindset is starting to influence how we look at things. And it really goes to how we fit in. We're not going to lead people to the Lord through osmosis. It could be part of it, but the truth has to be declared. And the truth is that Jesus died and rose again, and he put a value on every human life to the point that he died for every person. He hung on the cross for all mankind, for every individual, man, woman, every person that's ever been born, he hung on the cross for them. He said, what about before? He hung on the cross for those in the history behind him who by faith trusted God without seeing the crucifixion and resurrection, but by faith in God, it fit what Jesus did on the cross in an empty tomb. And looking forward, that's the way, that's the only way, the only gate, the only road that leads to eternal life. There's no other way. We can go to all the interface stuff we want to and kind of fit in and, you know, that's, that's okay. But that none of those... Uh, Chuck Colson said that Islam and Christianity both can't be right. Both can be wrong, but both can't be right because they're opposite. And no matter how much we embrace the mindset of fitting in and just being kind of like a good person and doesn't match up with what God has called us to be light in the midst of darkness. He's called us to be salt, which has a different flavor all of its own, right? How many salt lovers are in here? Salt everything. And it tastes better. I admit that I'm kind of leaning that way. We had mayonnaise sandwiches when I was... It didn't have anything to go with the mayonnaise, so we would pile on some salt with it just to change the mayonnaise taste. It was wonderful. It was better than whatever else we had, and that was probably nothing. <laughs> but we just, we, we just can't fit in that way. We, we need to be engaging but not fit in with that culture. God has called us to be different. I want the praise team to come back up. I just feel like we need to do a little bit of different altar time today. Because really, I think people, I think people ask the wrong question. They say, what's wrong with it? I think that's the wrong question. Here's a better question. What's right with it? And what do you think, what do you think God thinks about it? He says, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about the lottery. And it doesn't say anything about air conditioning. (laughs) 
But I don't think any of us are going to start tearing our air conditioning out because the Bible doesn't say we should have air conditioning. But you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about gambling. The Bible doesn't. I said, what do you, but, but really, if you felt like that God was going to say something about it, what do you think he would say? <laughs> don't work. Go play the horses. Take your grocery money over to the casino. You could hit it big. Is that what God would say? No. Let me ask you this. What do you think God would say about our complaining? Oh, that's just a sweet gift that you have there. You whine about everything. It's wonderful. It's one of the gifts of, no, it's not one of the gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> Critical. Caustic. Mully grubs. Some people just need a little bit of a happy splash. Just get a little happy. Smile a little bit. Be glad. Now, you might not want to come to this altar call <laughs> but if you just been in a tough place of heaviness and you just believe that God doesn't want you there God doesn't want you carrying a burden maybe sadness I, I know depression is a real thing our families dealt with that is a tough dynamic to lay overlay with the things of God but at least we can try at least we can bring it to him right would you stand with me